Hello friends and welcome to episode 18 of the Shiny Developer Series. My name is Eric Nance and I am delighted that you've joined us again today. I am really excited for this episode as I have a guest that I've seen across the various conferences for a long time and I've always been fascinated by her work with Shiny and also the practicalities of leveraging R and Shiny within data science workflows and she is finally here to talk about some great advice uh, how she structures her projects for Shiny development and the ways that she can turn real value very quickly from simple prototypes to major production applications. So let's not wait any longer. Let's talk with the founder and CEO of TCB Analytics, Tanya Casciarelli. <laughs> well, welcome, everybody. We are back with another awesome edition of the Shiny Developer Series, and I am so thrilled to be joined by the founder of TCB Analytics and pro Shiny developer, Tanya Casciarelli. So, Tanya, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Hi, Eric. Glad to be here. It's great to see you virtually again. We crossed paths before at our studio comp, and it's, yep. like I said, great to connect again. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit to lead off with your journey with R and how you discover Shiny. Sure, yeah. Um, so I actually, my first experience with R was back when I was an undergrad at Northeastern University in Boston. I was doing a co-op program, which means you intern for like six months and at a time uh, and then work six months. And I was at Children's Hospital Informatics Program uh, working under a PI there who basically said, here's a bunch of gene expression data from normal mouse brain development. And here's a bunch of gene expression data uh, from tumor cells in, in mice. And we want you to analyze this using something called R <laughs> uh, and do something called gene set enrichment analysis, which was a, a package made out at the Broad Institute at the time. And this was back in 2005 or so. So of course I was like, oh boy, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'd never heard of R. Uh, when I, I actually printed out the entirety of the CRAN documentation, <laughs> which was a total waste of paper, but yeah. uh, been there, done it. that. Use the yeah. grad school printer to do it too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I took it. I took it home that summer. I think and started reading. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I was fortunate to have some some really smart, you know, PhD mentors there that that helped me and uh, answered my my at the time pretty silly questions. But um, yeah, learned a lot there, and that was my first kind of foray into R. Um, shiny came a lot later as you, as you must know. <laughs> yes. Right. And so, um, yeah, so we have similar paths. I, I learned it in grad school right around the same time you just mentioned, really? and it was a lot different back then. Everybody no was learning, no, our studio, none of these niceties, whether it's the package collections or the IDEs, I mean, heck even visual studio codes coming up nice. I mean, there's all sorts of tools that we can use for development where before it was like some text editor on windows. I don't know. It's like tin R or something. I, I forgot, but it was, I just used the R suit, the R console and, or yeah. yeah, you and I are like the equivalent of, this is like the, I, I had to go up and down the hill in the snow to Back school. in my day, people. Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, good. Well, so we're going to have a lot to connect on, on those perspectives too, for sure. Um, yeah. So um, I think most people know you for um, doing your own kind of consulting gig with TCB Analytics. Maybe you could tell us a bit about how you, uh, yeah, rocking the swag, of course. So um, what, how did TCB Analytics get off the ground? Yeah, so I, you know, after that experience, I, I ended up um, starting my career in biotech in Boston at a mm -hmm. really cool startup where we did uh, 
we were building massive uh, Bayesian networks and reverse engineering essentially causal models on gene expression data, molecular data, omics data in an effort to understand uh, how specific patients would respond to say perturbations to the system where a perturbation is something like um, a dose of a drug or um, any kind of um, you know, different dose of a drug, different kinds of drugs, and so on. Based on their genetic makeup, how would they respond? Um, that's where I learned a, a vast majority of my R coding and, and a lot of the statistical techniques that we use today at TCB Analytics. But after that, um, did a couple other startups actually outside of healthcare, uh, but still within very data-rich industries like finance, CPG, um, sports, healthcare, even government. And eventually, I just kind of saw... You know, a lot of consulting shops that were coming into the companies I was working at, uh, over-engineering solutions or relying too heavily on proprietary software like IBM or SaaS, uh, and really just delivering like a PowerPoint, you know, for a lot of money. Um, and I just felt like that's, you know, I could do something better. You know, we we have such good tools, especially with R, R Markdown, and so on. Um, so the idea for behind TCB was not only could we help with delivering, you know, lower cost solutions using open source software like R. We do some Python as well, mm -hmm. uh, but we're mainly an R shop. Um, but we meet at the intersection between like the, the very technical and the business users. And so we, we can help deliver that value um, and bring that scientific rigor that I learned in the academia side of things in, you know, a, a company that was founded by PhDs at a Cornell, founded by statisticians, uh, but we were delivering a business solution. So the whole idea is we kind of bridge that world between scientific rigor and getting stuff done. Like we don't have five years to write a thesis. We have, <laughs> you know, three months to deliver a solution and make sure we do it right. Right, right. Yeah, it's a totally different perspective. But I think, you know, the experience that you brought into play is really helpful as you work with, a, I'm sure, a vast array of clients and in different industries. But yet there is still that kind of commonality of, well, we got to implement a solution. We want to do it in a robust way, something that can be maintained down the road, but be able to um, not have to be bogged down in a month's work, you know, many months work of, you know, just research for the sake of research. You got to get stuff done. And it exactly. sounds like the tooling and R, and we're going to be talking about Shiny a bit here, has enabled you all to really turn these solutions hopefully quickly and efficiently. Yeah, exactly. It's been uh, it's been amazing, which is why you know the art community is great, and I try to always support back and and give back and give it shout outs when I can because it really we built our consultancy around the art environment and ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And even in me being in a specific company, I am in somewhat of a consulting role with different teams mm -hmm. in the organization, and there are different ones that have different needs. Some do need that rather infamous PowerPoint at the end of some <laughs> ETL kind of analysis, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a reality, right? Um, yep, and, yep. and others need like the most complex thing, interacting with HPC and APIs on the web. So there's there's a healthy mix of things, but it yeah. all you know we have the right. tools and to we, do and it. And we usually we usually deliver you know a PowerPoint along with it, but we always like mm -hmm. to try to give them like a takeaway. Like you're gonna have a shiny dashboard that you can take yep. away from this and use. Um, or you're going to have some kind of some arm reports or, or markdown or something right. that they can take and reproduce and use and have long lasting value from. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so obviously a lot of these teams are working in data science and statistics. Um, so maybe you could tell us some of the key ways that you see these teams in data science 
that are creating values for their particular organizations and especially with some of the tooling that you're helping with them to create or to deliver on analytical results. Um, what are some of the things you're seeing there? Yeah, um, so it's really interesting because I've worked in you know startups where it's all data scientists. You know, there's a couple you know operational VPs and heads, but mm-hmm. um, that's always interesting because it's when you're a small company. But then I've had the experience of working in like a Fortune 500 that's very siloed. Um, and the way I've seen the data scientists work there and how I worked was probably similar to what you've done, uh, which is we're like a consulting arm to the entire company. Yes. So yeah, people come to us and it could be from global operations or commercial or, or mm-hmm. biostatistics or whatever, what have you. And the interesting thing about that model is that we learn a lot about the entire company as data scientists. We're almost like moles that are implanted throughout. And I can't tell you how many times I'd see someone in one department building something that someone else could use or one department's rebuilding the wheel. Um, right. Or there's data sources that one this one department's using that could be incredibly supplemental for this other department. So we get to kind of, in a way, bridge those gaps and uh, it feels like a superpower in a way because you're, you're, you've got all this exposure to the whole company and the, the data strategy and what's happening. Um, so that can be really interesting. The way I, I see data scientists though providing the most value is by bringing them into the projects early on, you know, during the requirements gathering phase, um, because the way the data is gathered can make or break a project. Absolutely. Um, yeah, especially especially in pharma and healthcare, like if you're designing right. experiments, you need to make sure you have the right number of samples, that you're going to have enough, uh, you know, degrees of freedom to do all the calculations that you need to do. Right. Um, and if you need to measure success, well, we need to collect metrics that are measurable, that we can say before, after, you know, there was an improvement. So, yeah, I just see, um, I'm seeing a lot of different ways that, that companies are starting to use us, but I think getting us there at the outset of a project is is smarter than saying, hey, we have this data, we need you to salvage and find like a needle in the haystack and right. provide, because we spent a lot of money on this data, we need you to pull out value from it. <laughs> yeah, and as much as I would like that to go away, it's never going to go away anytime soon, but I we know. did, at least in the projects I work on, we had the most success when we were brought in at the early stages, and then we can inform things like architecture design or what are what are the value statements that we're gonna you know get out of this analysis so that everybody knows tangibly why we're investing all this time and money into building maybe a new application that's supposed to be a front end to a brand new analytical workflow flow um i have seen situations where we got brought in way too late and we can try and rescue it as best we can but you can't you can't do everything (laughs) yeah it's not magic (laughs) not at all not at all um so certainly let's let's dive into some of the cool tech that i'm sure you've been building um so how has um maybe we could start with some of the techniques that you've been using as you've been developing shiny applications for your various clients as how you go from say prototyping a solution to making that production ready, which is something that I think only recently started to become more of a focus in the shiny community, but I'd love to get your take on some of the techniques you like to do there. Yeah, it's, um, so I've been a big proponent of this rapid prototyping thing. People are probably sick of me harping on it at this point, but it's really, it really is powerful. Um, I've been in companies where we, we try to guess what the customer wants, like without really having uh, requirements from them or without really testing anything or putting anything in front of them. Um, I've seen six months of development time be wasted only to build like Corvette when they wanted, you know, a 
a Ford truck. Exactly. <laughs> so I started to really be a proponent of this um, rapid prototyping idea, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds like you, especially for data products. There's just so many things that you can't predict with data. Uh, so I just, we just start to build it. I've taken pictures drawn on napkins from clients and turned it into, you know, something for them to react to in, within a Absolutely. week, yep. you know? Um, and then when they see it, suddenly they're like, oh, you know what? I didn't realize, like, I, I don't want to see this here and I actually need a filter on this. And I didn't realize, you know, the threshold of how many samples you'd have by state right. would be an issue. Right. How would you know that ahead of time? Um, so anyway, we, we do a lot of that. And then, and what, what's nice about it is the client feels very involved. It's very iterative, very collaborative. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the time, you know, we need to productionize it a bit, which is kind of becoming less and less of a thing with, with our, given like our connect, our server studio pro, um, you know, it's, it's already widely spread kind of throughout the company and uh, gained a lot of traction. Yeah, that's great to have those deployment targets. And like you said, the, the, the real value is you're taking this whiteboardy back of napkin ideas. And with a little bit of experience, you can, like you said, quickly turn that around to something they can react to. And yeah, I have seen through my experience that once they see something and they see how valuable it is, or they see how intuitive it is, they want more. It's yeah. never, never enough the first time. And I've, I'm completing a major project as we speak where I am kind of that person telling me I want more because I want to be like the one of the leading users of the very thing I'm making. So it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been a fun year in that sense. But yeah, you always it's just when they see the potential, there's yeah. always more that they can do. That's for sure. No, it's crazy. And, and, you know, it can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? You That's can true. fall into this trap of scope creep and let's just add more, add more, add more. Yes. And it just could be never ending because especially, I'll say it again, with data products, like there's just so much that can be done, Yeah. Uh, especially with rich data sets. Um, so, you know, the, one of the ways we try to safeguard around that is obviously scope, you know, very detailed. Uh, here's what we're trying to accomplish. We're going to include mm -hmm. this many either variables or scenarios and and yep. go from there absolutely so you know what mind we uh got into some specifics if you have some demos you'd like to share with us on a few of the apps you've worked on that you're yeah. able to share let's go ahead and dive into those okay um let me know i'm gonna load up this is one that we so we're actually hosting right now um a majority of our applications are hosted on shiny apps on the on the um i believe it's the standard tier and let me out here so you can see this so given the screen size it may be a little squished um but in order for you to see it um this is for a company called sports innovation lab based out of boston where we're based out of and where i'm originally from uh recently relocated to florida for, during quarantine but that's another topic um <laughs> anyway the can you see this dashboard absolutely looking great Okay, so just let me, a high-level overview is that this company is tracking um, the way that fans engage with sports, whether it's through betting or watching on TV or social. Uh, they're tracking the latest in technology like augmented reality, virtual reality, um, sensors on the athletes and all that fun stuff. Um, that said, they get most of their information from domain experts and market experts on their team, but they're a data-driven company such that they're tracking a lot of news articles and I'm talking, you know, I want to say they're getting on the order of thousands of articles into their system a day. Um, so what this, what you're seeing here is a way to understand what is 
spiking in the news abnormally as compared to like its typical news uh, coverage. So what we're looking at right now are teams and these teams are across multiple sports. And so you can see here that uh, I'm going to switch to a different sport. I'm going to go to the NBA. And on the right, we have a table just showing some basic statistics. This will highlight if there's anything out of the norm. But hmm. right, we're looking at on the left side is a list of the most recent quote unquote anomalies. So we're using uh, the Twitter's anomaly detection package just to look at the frequency that these teams are being mentioned in the news. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so let's click on one. November 3rd, uh, this was a couple weeks ago, the Memphis Grizzlies. And we scroll down. Here's a chart showing the anomalies that were detected. Hmm. And there's this big spike on the third. I want to see what's going on. Well, we pull in the articles making up that spike, and it looks like they announced a strategic partnership with FanDuel. Oh, wow. So that's a, if you're not familiar with FanDuel, it's an online sports betting platform. And we can actually click out and, you know, go to the articles as well. Oh, this is fascinating. This is a lot of concepts that I may dive into a little bit here, but what you've effectively done here is the idea of cross-linking. You've got one table that's kind of like the first pass into more detailed results, and then you're able to bring that on demand with these, um, these basically these click events and now this pop-over. That is really slick. Yeah, this is one thing I use a lot is being able to click a table or click a chart and then drill down to get more more detail. This one isn't, you know, it's not the prettiest. This is actually an internal facing tool for their analysts. Mm -hmm. How I envision something like this is uh, being used is basically um, to keep the analysts informed and, and streamlining a lot of the work, the manual work that they would typically have to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're doing the curation kind of detection for them. And with that, that novel use of that anomaly package, now they're able to simply go from sport to sport or, or do custom filtering as appropriate. Yeah, that's really nice. Yep, exactly. And of course, we have to get a shiny. It's so a, this it's is a demo. Yeah, this is querying the live, uh, their live database as well. Of, of ah, article. yes. Okay. So yep. let me also show you, you can do the same thing with vendors. So that was teams. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they're also interested in tracking vendors. Who's on the cutting edge of, you know, uh, diving into the sports uh, arena? Because, oh. you know, there's obviously a lot of money to be made in sports. There's a lot of uh, possibility there. So it looks like, you know, in the past um, few months, Tencent, this company had a, an increase in its mentions in the news. So I'm going to go down again and look at my chart. And it looks like that's because the Premier League uh, struck a deal with Tencent. I see. Yep. That would do and, it. <laughs> and so, like, you, you know, you're quickly eyeballing it. But another a way we took this a step further, and it's not on this dashboard, but is to do some tidy text analysis and just tokenize this and see what are the top mentioned words. And you'd quickly see things like China, TV deal, you know, sure. pre Premier League, and they'd bubble up to the top. So we're, again, we're streamlining that human process. Um, it's not artificial intelligence by any means, but we're automating a lot of manual work. Well, I can tell you in the industry, I mean, in, in many industries for that matter, just the idea of taking away a lot of manual looking up, manual writing, manual curations, it doesn't have to be deep learning or the fancy AI term to bring value right away. And you can build upon this later, as you said. I mean, but this is just taking away a lot of manual effort already. Exactly. And, and you know, we're a big proponent of that. They're getting from just number one, streamlining manual analysis to then maybe machine learning to then potentially artificial intelligence. It's a long path. 
And Absolutely. I'd say about 25 to 30% of our clients actually need or machine learning. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of them are just in the basic reporting. Uh, we do some anomaly detection like this. And they really need a way to just organize all their data into one place. This is pulling from, you know, probably six different tables, this, this um, application. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of times AI and machine learning get a little bit overhyped when people just need something more basic than that before they can get to that complex place. Yeah, and I think there are some cases where, you know, maybe some people in a leadership of an organization hear these fancy terms. I mean, buzzwords, you might say. And they want to go for that finished product right away on that side of it. But really, if you can just knock out these easier wins first, that makes the late stage so much easier. Plus, this may be good enough for the majority of the people that would use this kind of thing. They don't need all the fancy stuff. They just need some that can service the information effectively and dynamically, which is what you're doing here. Exactly. And eventually, you know, eventually this would lead to an alerting system. So we've been working yes. with the analysts internally to say, is this right? Does this make sense? Do you care about this? How can we tweak the anomaly detection algorithm? Mm -hmm. uh, and then if when they're happy with it, you send them actual email alerts. And that could be a potential customer facing application eventually. Absolutely. So yeah, you, you, and the nice thing is with Shiny's default UI of a few cosmetic tweaks here and there, you're able to get something in front of them quite quickly and they can navigate through it effectively. And yeah, that's looking really good. Exactly. So that's that example. Uh, there's a lot more here that I'm not going to get into, but um, I'll get into another example. Let's look at. So this one is another anomaly detection app. Uh, now, before I show you it, it's, it's for a company that creates um, rapid blood test machines and provides them for hospitals really all over the country. Uh, and there's these sensors on the machines that are constantly emitting all kinds of metrics on mm -hmm. the performance, on the measurements, and so on. And previously, it's a lot of data, as you can imagine. Uh, previously, they would get potentially a complaint in the field from a hospital, a provider uh, saying this machine is malfunctioning. And when they go and look back at the sensor data, they realize, wow, that we actually could have caught this ahead of time before it went out into the field. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're helping them do uh, in an automated, again, more automated way. They were doing it pretty manually before. So whatever you're looking at here is they have different four different data sources they can choose from. And uh, we're going to stick with this Elm one for now, which just means this is before it went out into the field. This is early life monitoring of the machines. We can specify a date range. And I'm just going to put this to like September. We're going to actually look for alerts, which are high, medium, and low significance anomalies. And the default is we remove outliers. And I'll show you why in a second. So this is querying a, a live database as well. And what you're seeing on the bottom is just all the different iterations that we're going through. We're looking at different analytes, uh, things like lactate, glucose, and then different measurement hours, different types of aggregations. And so there's, I want to say, um, a few dozen of those combinations. Wow. Now, now this is a little smushed because of the zoom, but hopefully you can see it. Uh, between this time frame, there were 54 high significance that were found, eight medium, zero low. And we've got them all listed here. So one thing I can do is click one. 
And if I scroll down, I get the chart of that exact anomaly that was nice. identified. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And then as a convenience, what I did by clicking on that was automatically update all of the thing fields here. This is awesome. So I, I've done, I've even started using this technique more this year is the fact that you can not only update other outputs or other parts of your main body, but then you can predefine or redefine the choices that are available to the user and lead them in the right direction. So I've, I've used um, more of those update family of functions yeah. way more this year than I ever did in the previous four or five years I did with Shiny because I finally mastered it. So this <laughs> is another great example of that. It's really nice. Yeah, it's the Shiny JS package, right? Um, oh, yes, yes. That's um, another, yeah, so you can... cornerstone of my dev toolbox, yep. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I, I advise them to start at the alerts tab, run it on the, the time frame they're interested in, mm -hmm. and then you can just dig in. You can say, oh, wow, this is interesting. Click it. Uh, gives you a chart here, but then, you know, I want to dig in more. So again, it brings you here and now you can play with all these other filters as well. Maybe you don't want to, oh, here, I'll get back to the outliers. Maybe I don't want to remove outliers. Watch how much this chart changes. Oh, I'm afraid to ask. Oh, yep. There's, there is. Yep. Uh, it changed a little bit. There were some oh, okay. of these, I think were picked up up top. There are mm -hmm. some examples, if I can find one that where they're just massive spikes that here they are. Yes. So, yes. So in working with the client, he, he told us, you know, there's going to be things that are just complete faulty mm -hmm. machine reading failures that we don't want to consider even in the realm of possibility. And that's going to affect anomaly detection greatly. Uh, the anomaly detection algorithm is very dependent on what gets put into it. So just so you can see as a comparison, I'm going to remove outliers on this example. And now we actually have none detected. Yeah, that's what a difference, right? But this yep. giving them that option, then they can figure out, oh, why don't we have anything there? Oh, that's why exactly. it was an outlier. <laughs> and then if I really relax, even the, the IQR, so typically it's mm -hmm. one and a half times, you know, standard deviation. Sure. Uh, we can actually, for the, for this client, it made sense to actually expand on that interquartile range. And then we do pull up one here, which they'd probably look at and say, eh, it's, it's just way out of the bounds of what we right. typically look at. Yep, but um, you're you're leading them to make an informed decision. In the end, it's up to them to decide. You know, is that really a, an anomalous finding that they have to investigate? Yep. Exactly. And what's really cool about this is they've been using it and bringing it to team meetings. They've been finding things that they're actually investigating, and they've found they found a few examples now that were real and that they wouldn't have discovered. You know, without using this tool. Yes, and and again, the interactivity is huge here, and I have parts in you know the work I do where some of them are still into that whole, let's print out a whole bunch of plots as statically as possible and thumb through them one by one and try to. But <laughs> sorry, it's 2020. We we can do better, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, that's that's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly how I started when we were initially developing the algorithm and the different parameters. I uh -huh. had written a script that basically iterated and created like 30 PDFs. And so I was looking through them, presenting them to the client, saying, does this make sense? And eventually, this actually became a tool for me that helped me refine the algorithm and just quickly you know, select different measures and be able to iterate on you know, what makes sense and what doesn't. So that's how I played with the alpha value here. That's your significance. Yep. Uh, that's how I played with different combinations of that, removing outliers. Uh, so Shiny makes it just so easy to quickly iterate on things like that. 
Yes, I did a very similar thing where in the early part of my, my um, industry career, I was in charge of analyzing a whole bunch of proteomic biomarker data collected from yeah. patient samples. And there was like maybe 200 or so markers. And yeah, the, the early days of my development, I printed a 200 page PDF, basically each had the yeah. same plot, just a different marker. And then <laughs> after I discovered showing, I was like, wait a minute. I just have a little drop down, let them choose the marker and then it just renders it dynamically. It's like, ha, huh, where was this many years ago? But you know. Oh, I know. I could have <laughs> used the shiny a long time ago. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. man. In my dissertation, I could have taken a whole different level, but that's another story. <laughs> um, now, when you mentioned something in the early part of this demo, is that, and even the last one, is that you're interacting with different you know, data sources, everything like that. Yep. So I'm. I deal with this quite a bit too, where I have to integrate my shiny apps with different systems and different, mm -hmm. you know, endpoints or API endpoints, things like that. So what's that, what's that been like for you? Have, have you, um, what kind of advice do you have for those that have to integrate shiny with different systems and kind of the, the development workflow you have for that operation? Yeah. So we've, we've integrated shiny with a lot of different systems and backends specifically, uh, Typically, we, we start, especially because it's hard to get access to client databases right away, we usually start with a flat file uh, and we build it assuming that we're going to be switching it over pretty seamlessly to, say, a live database. Mm -hmm. So um, there are things that we, we think about at the outset, which are like understanding how all of the different pieces are going to work together, number one. Um, will we be pulling directly from the database? Will we be pulling from you know a batch job run nightly? Will we be pulling from... Uh, an API. So all of that kind of drives how we're going to set up and design the application at the outset. Um, the different, so different databases we've actually worked with just for, for curiosity's sake, if you're interested is MongoDB. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually wrote our own R package to query uh, MongoDB from R because at the time it was actually probably five years ago, uh, there wasn't a package that enabled authentication with the t version of Mongo we were using. So oh, I see. Okay. That was, yeah. Um, uh, obviously SQL Server, Postgres, all the main sort of relational databases. Um, mm -hmm. And then both AWS uh, connecting to Redshift. Um, we've connected R now to Snowflake. Uh, so two columnar databases. Uh, really, I mean, you can you connect R and Shiny to anything, right? Just like any other yep. programming language. And sometimes people don't realize that. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that we've done, uh, we've integrated with different front ends, right? So there are some uh, charts, even in the R packages, even though there's been a ton of amazing work around being able to create D3 charts, there's packages like Network D3, High Charter. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you still need more customization on the JavaScript D3 side. Sure. So we do have a couple projects where we uh, use custom D3 on the front end and Connected it connected to uh, Shiny on the back end using uh, HTML widgets, basically, and we have all the flexibility we need then. Um, and charting, you know, you don't you're not stuck with just like the R packages that are available, basically. Yeah, mentioning D3, that's actually a callback to one of our episodes last year where we had um, Nick Strayer talk about the R2D3 pack and some of the cool stuff he was doing to do that customization. But yeah, there are now even interfaces with R to get to that added customization. And yeah, there's so much power power you can do with a little D3 magic and it can go a long way. Yeah, I mean, one thing to think about too, it's really new, it's called the Arrow Package by yes. Apache. Uh, oh, I mean, 
if you're building a, if you're going to be integrating with other languages, especially, I mean, there's the reticulate package, right? Um, yep. To call Python scripts from R, but uh, Arrow now provides this easily exchangeable shared data format, which is going to be just a game changer, I think. So uh, I'm going to try to start when you're building a shiny app that you know is going to integrate with other languages, uh, you probably want to check out Arrow. Um, it's also just blazingly fast. We were able to query like 4 billion rows and run an aggregation and filter in like three seconds on my local machine. Oh, that's who would have thought that years ago <laughs> when you and I were learning all this stuff the first time that we oh, did geez. that capability. My goodness. Yeah, I was connecting to IBM BlueGene and supercomputers to do stuff like that and having exactly. to do all the parallel processing. So, yep. um, and then the only other thing I'd mention is if you're going to be integrating with other systems, sometimes you'll want to uh, build your build your app and your R script such that they can be called from a command line. So yes. um, think about ways to to send parameters and be able to call it from from anywhere. Yeah, and that that the the kind of theme of that that I've been doing a lot this year is that my apps are now packages. Um, I actually wrap them oh, in Golem nice. now, and but the okay. key part is that I'm putting out the business logic away from like the real app code per se. They're just function calls that you could technically execute outside the app, so that it makes testing a lot easier. If like I know what UI params I was going to set. I can just run those as like feeding into the function instead and then debug the heck out of that business logic kind That's of nice. thing before yeah. I get into the issue of, okay, is the time in the UI and all that. So that's definitely, you know, that's good advice to make sure that you can at least evaluate or test these connections outside your app. Right. And I've had a lot of experience of API um, integrations I'm actually going to try and get more involved with Plumber because that's such a mm -hmm. awesome package to make APIs from R. Yeah, but it is. Cer certainly I've been getting more involved with, okay, if I can just connect to an API via, say, HTTR, one of those packages, what are the status codes I'm getting back? Do all that stuff outside the app first, then fold it in when you're ready and you've got that kind of work in working order. Um, exactly. And, and that's how I typically do all, all my Shiny apps is just the R code outside mm -hmm. of Shiny. Then you just kind of plug it in. It's pretty, it's pretty easy once you know R to build a Shiny app. Absolutely. And, and the examples you've shown thus far are kind of this nice mix of... Um, dashboardy like solutions and with some real integrated outputs into that um so in what cases do you typically use like a dashboardy like solution versus a more kind of traditional like here's your inputs here's your outputs um setting yeah um so we built some a really cool app um at a pharma company i was at that was more like a model simulation type dashboard um it was still a dashboard, but it was much more like plug in your inputs and your parameters. And it was for uh, clinical trial enrollment. So we were trying to predict um, when patients would be completely recruited at and at each individual site. Mm -hmm. So we could code in parameters like the rate at which they're enrolling, the population around there, um, the you know disease population around there, and then also even a, a code in uh, exceptions for things like if there was an earthquake in this particular country where the site is, we have to shut down enrollment. That's going to affect our model. Sure. Um, so that was a cool, that was more like uh, we're running an MCMC just simulation and uh, it would give you inputs and then outputs and we would take that and then deliver it to the client. So that was more like a tool for us. I see most of shiny dashboards are like either internal kind of sandboxy prototyping uh, for playground, essentially like, yeah. I think that's important for all data science teams to have is somewhere to play, 
build out potential new product ideas, but then also have internal tools that like you and I use that help us with our own day to day. And and then there's like the client facing, which are usually dashboards, Mm -hmm. at least for us. Um, and I do have one more if we have time. Oh yeah, please. Let's, let's see it. Okay. Um, so as you can tell, I, I love shiny. It's like one, one of my favorite. That's why I'm doing this dev series. (laughs) Uh, so this is, uh, this is for another farmer company. I've, we've, um, anonymize, you know, the IDs and everything and have their permission to show this one. So this is, uh, they are tracking basically all of their different studies, uh, using this dashboard, uh, things like protocol deviations in their clinical trials. So when, you know, something goes wrong, um, they need to know where it's happening, you know, which sites so they can address it. Is it a training issue? Uh, and basically what you're seeing right now is just a high level overview of the deviations happening by study. Uh, Mm -hmm. both major and minor, major and minor alone. And this is a quick, like, I come in, I get a high-level overview. Okay, I want to look at the USA only. I want to look at a specific site. So it will allow you to kind of do all that level of filtering. And that's just where you come in. It gets more interesting when you actually dig into the protocol deviations. Oh, I bet, yeah. We have, you know, for this study, the number of enrolling sites, the number of subjects enrolled, so there's 10 at five different sites, how many deviations, and then how many deviations per enrolled or randomized patient. And then this heat map here, and let me get a bigger study so it's a little bit easier to understand. Uh, this heat map is showing the breakdown of uh, deviation types. So was it some oh, kind of Oh, what a nice compliance? way to represent that info. Yeah, that's a really cool technique. Yeah, and you can see the major, minor, it groups them differently. Um, you know, darker green means there's more. Um, and then we have the table breakdown of what's basically making up that heat map. Oh, that is cool. And you've even augmented it with tool tips. So Plotly for the win there. Plotly is really yeah, nice. Plotly is a game changer. And it's, I love ggplotly because you can just write their ggplot code and then yes. wrap ggplotly around it. Yeah, I've been starting to use Plotly in more of my Shiny apps and the, the things you can do with the interactions between the Plotly output and to like say a table like you're doing here or other things like when you zoom in or you select items. Oh, yep. it's a, it's almost addicting after a while. The cool things you can do with this. Yeah, yeah. and like the Plotly event clicks we use a lot. Yes. I don't have it in this example, but uh, you know you could click basically a box and it might filter something else. Uh, yep. That's really easy in Plotly. And then we can filter over here by say majors and look at well which site is most problematic. Well, there's only one person enrolled here, so I'm going to actually sort. And now I'm looking at my deviations. This one's kind of interesting. What's going on in Poland? Oh, so I can sure. click it. And I get this chart updates and it looks like IP, IP compliance. compliance. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if we scroll down, we actually get the, you know, the drill down detailed information as well. Yep. And this is another example of going away from those dreaded static outputs across different domains and be able to put it yes. all in one place. This is really cool. Yeah. And the way they were previously doing this was literally manually curating a PowerPoint every week and it took them yes. several days. And now we basically get a dump of data every month and, upload it and it's hosted for them on shiny apps and they're using it you know in their in their strategic meetings with senior leadership every week well uh, ironically this is something that my own company is wrestling with quite a bit so i've got some uh, food for thought for maybe a, a, new, a future application idea <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's been really fun and they're yeah, all these clients especially when you're working with shiny they just they love it they it, they're really happy with the visuals the interactivity um and because we treat it as hey 
we're building this together iteratively. This is our, you have a group of kind of friendlies at, at the outset. And then when mm -hmm. we all feel comfortable and confident in the numbers and the visuals, then they get to unveil it to a wider audience. And it's just, it's just fun. Absolutely. And um, yeah, maybe you could talk a bit kind of on the practical side as you're starting one of these projects. Um, what is the kind of the level of engagement in the early stages? And is it you doing most of the development? Do you work with a team of developers as you make these like from the other organization? How, how does that typically work in your in your projects? Yeah, typically it's been um, us and our team build it and mm -hmm. we're working usually with like a, a point person that's uh, kind of in charge of either the data team over there or in charge of some kind of, uh, say, clinical operations. So we tend to do most of the development, but we also have done handoffs to, if they have data scientists in-house, they get all the code, we have it all commented, we'll do like a knowledge transfer. Um, and we have had a couple instances where we do work with another developer. Uh, no big surprise, there aren't, there still aren't many shiny developers out there. Yeah. I know. I've been through quite a few. <laughs> yeah. So, so we tend to, it's very, we tend to do like weekly updates and mm -hmm. just, it, it's really cool to see the, get the feedback because they, they don't really know until they can see it. Uh, and then they're able to quickly say like, for example, um, this site monitoring compliance, uh, just recently we got some feedback that they wanted to add another filter here. Mm -hmm. Uh, they want to not only be able to multi-select country, but they want to, um, have an automatic filter on year to date. And then I think it's since inception. So we're actually going to add some kind of KPI boxes like we have here. These, these value boxes are great. I know. Um, I use them all the time. Yep. It, yeah. And we're just going to put that there and, and that's something that they're not going to know they want until they see something like this. Yeah. That's the key is that you give them something to react to, but you know, when it's just like on a blank canvas, it's very difficult to get those ideas. But if you start somewhere and like you said, the UI pieces that things like shiny dashboard or some of the newer ones out there, they give you, it just opens the floodgates sometimes. <laughs> it, yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so those are all my demos I have. We have obviously a ton more projects we've done and um, those are the ones I got permission to share and, um, They've been, yeah. they've been good good projects so far. Absolutely, yeah. It should be inspiring to our audience uh, quite a bit if they want to you know, take some of these ideas in, in their projects as well. Um, that's actually a good segue as we were talking about kind of like the development in a team environment. Um, you just mentioned it is hard to find really uh, talented, shiny developers out there. Um, and obviously a success of TCV Analytics is that you are very proficient with shiny, so you're able to get these projects. Um, but if if those of us that are maybe looking to add new developers into our organization or whatever group we have, um, what advice do you have as you've been working with in team environments to maximize kind of that value of that partnership or to find the really talented developers out there? I don't know what that journey has been like for you. Yeah. So let's see. I mean. I know for me and finding talent and, and people that are just love this stuff is I started out going to meetups, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, finding the people presenting, finding the people even attending, um, and have made hires former companies that way. Um, in terms of, you know, getting them to be really effective, uh, I always say, I mean, don't hire these people as if they're just going to go sit in a back corner and then disappear and come back with something that you magically want. They need to be 
exposed to the, the business, exposed to the key stakeholders, uh, decision makers, because ultimately you're building something that is going to drive decision making. Right. So get them, get them the exposure, visibility, especially when hiring full-time people. And we've done surveys on, uh, on this actually um, on what data scientists want. And a lot of them, it's, it's salary and all that other stuff is typically down on the list compared to I'm making a difference. I'm pushing the needle forward in my company. I'm getting visibility to the, the key decision makers and just feel that my work has an impact. Mm-hmm. So if you can do all those things and then, you know, if you've got cool data, interesting problems, you're, and they have these, these different uh, tools at their disposal, you're typically going to have a, a easier time hiring people. Yeah, I think that engagement is really important because I think some of the traditional kind of IT processes of developing products or apps or whatever you want to call it, they do still have that tendency of like, okay, we're going to hire this person who just knows JavaScript very well. They're going to do all the UI stuff. Then we have someone else that does the back end stuff and they're all just going to be in their own silos. They come together <laughs> once a month and they're like, no, this doesn't work this way. And then the product owners are like, no, that's not what we intended. And they have to go back. <laughs> Um, it's yeah. best to get on the same page quickly. Um, <laughs> I've yes. seen situations where I took my eye off for a little bit and then it went in a completely different direction than what I wanted. So it's a, right. it's a, it's an art that's never perfected. But, um, and what, I mean, what's yeah. your ideal kind of, I'm going to interview you now. What's your, what's your ideal, uh, shiny kind of project and situation? So the, I, I mean, definitely getting started early. I think that the key is figuring out a way to translate the different capabilities that we have to offer, which um, you can do, like you just said, there's about anything in Shiny. It's about knowing the audience and what they're really going to do with this app. Some yeah. people will just be like, it's a sandbox. They're just going to look at some info and then that's kind of it. Others are going to be like, hey, I got this important milestone coming up of like a data transfer or something. I need it to work and I need it to work perfectly because I'm going to demo it with leadership on the spot when this data comes in. That's a totally different mindset (laughs) than the former. So for me, I have to know kind of what the purpose of the app is going to be. And then be able to break down kind of what are the UI pieces that are going to need the most attention what are some of the more quick wins? And then what are the backend situations, you know, um, integrations going to be like? And I can tell you from experience, if I know up front that I'm going to have to deal with a high performance computing environment, which I've had three apps this past year that have done that, mm-hmm. that is the most painful thing I ever do in Shiny. The most painful. And I'm yeah. not saying that to be mean because that system is really powerful. And when it works, my VP of the organization was amazed that I could get like simulation results in barely three minutes that would take a week on somebody's laptop. So like that is like, okay, that's why I do what I do. But getting to that point, I just (laughs) have to prepare myself. It is like the open heart surgery of shiny development when you have to do HPC integrations. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I mean, ours single threaded by nature, right? So it's (laughs) exactly, but it's, um, and the API stuff's kind of similar, although I feel like there's a lot more out there for debugging like API calls or knowing how to bring that in. So I can kind of get what I need quicker. But when you deal with these compute environments, whether they're cloud-based HPC or just internal like organization has 700 nodes in a cluster that's all networked together via SunGrid engine or Slurm or whatever have you, 
it's it's definitely a different mindset and that yeah. mindset is so hard to find developers that know how to work with those things yes that, i mean just knowing shiny itself at a a level that you think you can build a production grade application it's hard enough to find yeah. but then to integrate it with these you might say esoteric or more complicated systems to have oh, yeah. that expertise in both tough yeah. <laughs> it's tough yeah totally agree yep i've seen the same thing pretty much um even it, we had a team of people eventually working on the the shiny app i was building on mongodb because we were uh -huh. querying like 16 billion uh snips from you know uh genome-wide association studies. And yes, yes. It was just me at first, but then it was like, well, we need someone to kind of help tune the Mongo database, and then we're going to team up on building this R package, and then we had a front-end developer to help with paging because, mm -hmm. you know, paging through and sorting uh, 16 billion records is you're not sorting the whole thing. Um, so, or you want to sort, but you want to sort on the back end. Exactly, yeah, yeah. definitely <laughs> not on the client side. You're in a world no. of hurt then. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was cool the way it came together, and I learned a lot. That's the way you learn a lot, though, too, is like, you know, I started out using Shiny when it was just the only help available was the Google group with, uh, you know, like Joe Chang. And Fond <laughs> memories. He was on that list all the time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was building my own like fantasy football apps back then. And all my questions were around that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an awesome way to learn. Just do something that scratches your own itch sometimes. But you yeah. want to use that to build up. And, you know, I've done a, a little thing with Tidy Tuesday recently where I was just animating some plots of Plotly, but it's like, hey, now I can do it in Plotly. Now I know how to do it later on. So yeah. just little wins like that. Um, nice. You know, the other thing that, you know, getting setting up like a team of developers for success is when you separate your app out into distinct components. So, and obviously I'm thinking of modules here from the mm -hmm. shiny side of it. That way you can have a certain set of people work on a particular module they right. can do that without affecting like me doing like some of the HPC stuff or other things like that. And then we can just come together at some point, making sure they all play nicely with each other, but I'm not holding them back. They're not holding me back. Right. If we have the code base, you know, structured in such a way that they can edit that stuff and we don't have to deal with merge conflicts and get, which are definitely rough when you have a big shiny app. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, we've done the same thing with like, we'll, we'll just completely decouple even the statistical modeling and have, you know, yes. our, our PhD statistician work on that and then have yes. someone dealing with all the making it pretty and front end and file uploads and the, the basic shiny component. stuff. Yeah, that process worked very well for me for an app that I hope I can open source later this year where it was for a COVID um, oh, nice. design analysis, but we had a talented statistician on my team make the back end package that did like the actual algorithm the actual simulation i yep. put the shiny app as a front end to it i tied it with hpc and then i just brought all the outputs after the jobs were done but yeah having that back end package saved me so much time and frankly a lot of headaches of having to make that code base so massive with everything in it but right. just a package it's got its own repo it's got its own development life cycle and that i think more apps need to take that approach if you're going from like the simple, you know, simple dashboard of like one data source and one type of output. Yeah, throw everything in one repo. But when you've got multiple systems involved, yeah, you've got to separate that out if yeah, you want yeah. any sanity <laughs> left over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, you kind of touched on, you know, the things that we were learning in our development early days. Um, 
But um, what do you see opportunities for those out there that are like learning shiny a bit? They want to start, you know, getting out there and helping people with various projects. Do you see opportunities for a lot of freelance shiny app development um, these days? Or what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we I'd say 85 percent or more of our work right now is shiny related. Um, sure. I think ShinyApps.io has a free tier. You can start to build mm -hmm. out your own portfolio. And I think that's a good way to start getting your work out there, uh, drum up some interest. Um, I think there's plenty of opportunity uh, for Shiny development. Sometimes for us right now, we're fortunate that it's it's coming to us, but there's a lot of postings you know, online um, in various groups. And um, people are start, the more people start to learn about Shiny, the more it gets out there, just the more work there's going to be. Um, and so we always are trying to get out front and present what we've done and, and get people excited about it, but plenty of opportunity. Um, and, you know, we're always hiring part-time consultants, consultants to do shiny work. So you know where to find me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yep. We'll have all the links in the show notes, uh, to, to all the re ways to find you. Um, but let's, let's, um, you know, we could talk forever. You'll definitely oh, be yeah. on again at some point. But um, maybe we could um, get your thoughts and advice um, for those that are looking to maybe get involved with Shiny more in like a professional level, maybe finding jobs involving Shiny or even just advice about learning Shiny in general. Yeah. Um, so as everyone knows, there's obviously self-paced like online learning programs yep. like Code Academy, but our studio has a great, our studio's training videos and, and everything are, are fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, the tutorials on there is really uh, how I got started. Um, I would say uh, one thing I wanted to pull up is, is oh, the Art Studio team. Art Studio uh, is, is releasing these, um, there, there's tutorials within the IDE itself. So you download our studio, and there's there is not a shiny one yet, but uh, I'm actually interested in potentially making one, you know, for the community. So keep an eye out for the R Studio uh, IDE tutorials that are integrated right within R Studio itself. Um, that's that's all I wanted to show there. But otherwise, cool. yeah, otherwise, um, I'd say attending user meetups uh, virtually. Obviously, everything's pretty much virtual right now. The, the mm -hmm. user groups are great. Um, the our, you know our studio hosts one uh, start to use publicly available data sets that scratch an itch like like you said uh, about data sets that interest you get yeah, to come up with a question you want to answer and, and do your analysis in R and then start putting it into shiny using some of these tutorials um, the other way to just brush up your skills obviously in R in general is is on Kaggle if you if you want to start playing around with machine learning absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. We do a lot of, we use Shiny actually a lot with, when we are doing machine learning projects, we use Shiny to enable our clients to interact with the models themselves. So they can kind of search for, they could provide an input to the model and see what comes out. And that's just a really cool way of making the model interactive and uh, allows us to fine tune and, and enhance the models themselves based on the user's feedback and in interacting with it. Very cool. Well, like I said, it's been lots of fun to talk to you today and we'll definitely uh, connect again. But for those that want to get a hold of you, um, what are the best ways they can reach you? Twitter is fine, but uh, my mm -hmm. email, uh, our website is tcbanalytics.com mm -hmm. and there's a contact form there. Uh, my direct email is tanya at tcbanalytics.com. 
Well, awesome, Tanya. Like I said, you're welcome back anytime. And um, it's great to have a kindred spirit who learned R the hard way like me. <laughs> yeah, I could I could nerd out about this stuff all day, Eric. Thanks you for bet. having me. Yep. All right. Well, everybody, we'll be back right after this. All right. My thanks to Tanya for joining us today. And boy, did we have a lot of fun chats even after the recording was, was stopped that we definitely will have her back on in the future episodes as she and I have lots of ideas and a lot of common, uh, common experiences from learning R in the early days and how we've been leveraging Shiny to bring value within an industry setting. So you'll definitely be seeing her back on. So in the meantime, if you'd like to learn about past episodes, the best place to go is shinydevseries.com and you'll find the recording links to all the previous episodes um, and direct links to the YouTube channel. Also, if you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter with at the RCast. And there's also a contact link on the Shiny Dev Series site if you'd like to send your feedback that way. All right, well, we're going to close up episode 18. Thank you again for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Until then, end of line.